John 13, John chapter 13. And everybody's going to need a Bible to look at the passage that we'll be considering. So these guys have some. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, just get their attention and they'll get one of those to you. John 13. In June of 2012, Vanity Fair magazine featured an article that was commemorating the 45th anniversary of the 1967 so-called Summer of Love that took place at Haight-Ashbury, the Haight-Ashbury District of San Francisco. And that summer, tens of thousands of young people flocked to a 25-square-block area, and they brought, the article says, a new kind of music, acid rock, to the airwaves. They nearly put barbers out of business. They traded clothes for costumes, turned psychedelic drugs into sacred door keys, turned sex with strangers into a mode of generosity, made the word uptight an epithet on a par with racist, and placed that favorite American adjective free next to new nouns. Putting free before any word, food, store, love, human being, changed everything. Their version of love was so free that Janis Joplin, one of the favorite singers at the summer's festivals, could be openly bisexual. The phenomenon, the article says, of the summer of love washed over America like a tidal wave, ushering in a series of liberations and awakenings that irreversibly changed our way of life. One reporter for the Washington Post who spent time in San Francisco during the summer of love said that what alarmed him was, quote, the overnight change in the attitude toward drugs. Now, suddenly, middle-aged and working-class kids were coming for a few weeks. Then, when the dirt between their toes got too encrusted, they went home. This was when American blue-collar and middle-class kids became drug users, he says. This was the beginning of the Rust Belt rusting. Just three years after the so-called Summer of Love, Janis Joplin was dead of a drug overdose. And that was just three weeks after another of the summer's musical stars, Jimi Hendrix, had also died of an overdose. And both of them were 27 years old. It's amazing, isn't it? All that's done in the name of love. We say we fall in love, we fall out of love, we've lost that love and feeling. We ask, where did the love go? We wail like those great theologians, Foreigner, or more recently, Mariah Carey, saying, I want to know what love is. And of course, if they had any sense, they'd just ask another great theologian, share Was it in his eyes? No. Is it in his size? No. He'll make believe. If you want to know if he loves you so, says Cher, it's in his kiss. But for all the talk of and singing about love, love hurts, love stinks. What's love got to do with it? For all of that, I'd suggest to you that the world has no idea what love is. 
And the world has no idea who it is we're supposed to love. And the world has no idea how we're to love. Now, I'm not surprised, and you shouldn't be either when the world is clueless. The Bible and our experience confirm as much. But the truth is we begin to think like the world when we imbibe its fallen values that are expressed in the culture. I recently received a note from a man who has left his wife. This is a man who has been taught the truth very clearly over a long period of time. But apparently in that time, he wasn't listening. Among other things, he said to me, the fact is that I've fallen out of love and I cannot go back to her or to the love I once had. He adds, I have prayed about this and I'm good with this decision. Well, I've got an idea. Since God is love, and since God has written a book revealing himself to us and instructing us, what do you say we consult him? And perhaps each of us should resolve right now to actually listen and to take to heart what God says. Let's ask the Lord to help us as we do that. Father, we're here. We are here to worship. But Lord, it is possible for us to be here physically occupying space in this room at this sacred moment. But not fully be engaged and not fully attentive to the reason for which we are here. All of life is about you. Life is to be God-centered. You are the God who made it. And it is through you and to you and from you that are all things. Lord, we forget that. We take it for granted. And so now, Lord, we need to be reoriented. And so we ask you to use this time to reorient our minds by opening our hearts to your truth. May we appropriate it. May we not just hear the words, but may we listen. May we heed for your glory. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, at the beginning of this new year, I wanted to spend several weeks reminding us regarding what God says that we, the church, are to be and are to do. We've seen in previous weeks now that the church is God's family, his household. And so I've titled this series, Life in the Father's House. We've seen that the word church in the Bible means called out ones, those called out of the world and to God. And the titles of the individual messages in this series reflect that calling that we all have if we're part of God's family, his church. We've seen that we're each called to ministry and called to truth and called to holiness and last week called to mission. And today and for the next few weeks, as in the title That's at the top of your outline. If you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to take that out of the program that you received. And at the top there, you'll see that we're called to love. And the passage we're going to consider in John 13 begins a new section of the Gospel of John, the book of John. The first 12 chapters of John cover 33 years of Jesus' life. Starts in chapter 1 with what's called the Incarnation. 
The fact that he came to earth from heaven, adding humanity to who he always had been and always will be God. And then it proceeds to his ministry of teaching and the miracles that he performed. The first 12 chapters cover 33 years. And the next five, starting with chapter 13, cover just one night. The night before Jesus is crucified. Now, along the way, in those 12 chapters, the Bible documents that Jesus has engendered intense hatred from the Jewish religious leaders. Rather than receiving him as the Messiah promised in the first part of our and their Bible, instead they despise him as a threat to their positions and they're plotting against him. At the very beginning of the book, John summarized what he had detailed in the chapters to follow. When he said this in chapter one, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. That is, even though he came to his own people, the Jews, the vast majority did not receive him. But on the night before he died, Jesus is gathered with just a few who had. And now Jesus turned from public ministry to those who rejected him to private ministry to those who received him. And verse 1 of chapter 13 says this. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, as this chapter opens, the night before Jesus dies. Jesus and the twelve apostles are in the upper room of a house that has been loaned to them for the observance of the Passover feast. Before the meal, Jesus uses this occasion to teach them the true nature of love. And I say in your outline, first of all, he teaches them this, that true love is willing to die for another. True love is willing to die for another. Now, in verse 1, John tells us that the hour had come for him to leave this world. But prior to chapter 13, and actually just toward the end of chapter 12, prior to that, John has mentioned and Jesus has mentioned his hour a few times, saying that his hour had not come. Back in chapter 2, Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. In chapter 7, some of his detractors wanted to do him harm. And John 7 tells us this, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Because his hour had not yet come. And then likewise, the next chapter, John chapter 8, again, this hatred. And they want to do harm to him. But chapter 8 tells us no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Do you see this? Nobody can do anything to him until he's ready. (laughs) So the events now of this night, documented from chapter 13 through chapter 17, and then the next day in his crucifixion. This is not Jesus being in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people. He's exactly at the right place at exactly the time that he has appointed For the very first time, back in chapter 12 and verse 23, Jesus says the hour indeed is here. 
And so in all of this, God has orchestrated precisely the time for the last act in the drama of Jesus' earthly ministry. And he orchestrates it to occur right at the time of Passover. Verse 1 of chapter 13 tells us it was the time for the Passover feast. The Last Supper, as it has come to be known, was a Passover meal. Now, some of you may be familiar with the debate about what the so-called synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke say about the timing versus what John says about the timing and whether or not this was indeed a Passover meal. I'm not going to bore you with all of that. But for those of you who know about that, I just want you to know I know about it too. And I'm convinced that this is a Passover meal that Jesus has on this night before he, he dies. And in chapter 12 and verse 23, Jesus said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And he has orchestrated this time, this hour, to be precisely at the time of, of Passover. Now recall what Passover is. Passover is the time when the Israelites came out of, of Egypt and God sent the plagues upon the Egyptians. And that tenth and final plague was for the firstborn of each uh, home to be taken in death. But God said, your home will be spared if you take the blood of a lamb and you put that blood on the doorpost of your home. If you have that blood there, then you will be passed over. And thus the name of the feast every year, Passover. And the reason, one of the reasons, undoubtedly, that God has orchestrated this time for the sacrifice of Jesus to be at Passover is because Jesus is called in the very first chapter of this book, the Lamb of God. When John the Baptist saw him, he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then later in your New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 says Christ is our Passover Lamb who has been sacrificed. And at this final meal, the Last Supper, this Passover meal, Jesus is going to say to his disciples, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And in all of this, then, it is setting the stage for the hour, the time at Passover, when the Lamb of God will now be sacrificed, His life will now be given up for others. He loves, and therefore He's willing to die. True love is willing to die for another. We're all familiar with John 3.16, part of this same book that we're in here. The most well-known verse in the Bible, God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16. But there's 1 John 3.16. John not only wrote the Gospel of John, but he wrote three letters in your New Testament, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation, five books. And in 1st John 3.16, here's what he said. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. So in the opening act of this drama that is the night before Jesus died in John chapter 13, our attention is called back intentionally by God to the Passover. 
And now the Lamb of God is being prepared to die for the sins of his people. But in his dying, it's not only effectual, it has effect for those who believe in him, but it is also a model for the kind of sacrifice that true love involves. That's why verse 1 says, he showed them to the very end the true extent of his love. He loved them to the very end, the last part of verse 1 says. When it says the, the very end, that word end can mean a time to the very end of his time. Or it can mean he loved them to the fullest extent. And the truth is, in the next 24 hours, both of those are going to be true. To the very end of his life, he loved those who were his own. And he also showed them how to love, as we're going to see in the next scene. Love them to the uttermost and to the very last breath. Friends, each of us needs to have someone or something that we consider valuable enough to die for. First John 3.16 tells us we ought to be willing to die for one another. Martin Luther King said, There are some things so dear, some things that are so precious, something so eternally true that they're worth dying for. And if a man has not discovered something that he will die for, he isn't fit to live. That's, That's true love. True love is willing to die for another. And Jesus demonstrated that in dying for you. Now think about this. He died for you. He died for me. Knowing what you're like and knowing what I'm like. And knowing what you would do. Let me say that again. Jesus died for you knowing what you're like and knowing what you would do. And for some of you, there is, there is something that is so big and so deep and so dark in your life that you simply can't get over it. You can't get over the fact that you did this. The truth is, friends, we shouldn't be surprised that we as sinners are capable of doing the things we do, one. But secondly, and most importantly, when Jesus died, he knew you'd do that. And he died for you anyway. True love is willing to die for another. But secondly, I say in your outline, true love is willing to live for another. True love is willing to live for another. Verse 2. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, what's going on here? These 13 men are gathered in this upper room the night before Jesus dies. They've come there from going back to John chapter 11, the town of Bethany. You may remember in Bethany, Jesus raised his dear friend Lazarus from the dead. And Jesus declared, I am the resurrection and the life. And now they have, they've come 
to Jerusalem from Bethany. They've walked a good ways on the dusty roads of Palestine. And therefore, there's the need for the cleaning of their feet. And so there are provisions normally made in a a guest house with a vessel of water and another to catch it in. And a slave, a servant, would normally wash the feet of those entering. But not just any slave, but it had to be a non-Jewish slave. A Gentile would do this. It was too demeaning for a Jew, even if it was a Jewish slave. And verse 4 says he Jesus took off his outer clothing. He had an outer robe and an undergarment. That undergarment is variously called by commentators a a loincloth or a tunic. But in any case, slaves did not have the outer robe, robe. And so Jesus was not only adopting the work of a servant, but the clothing of a servant slave as well. Now, verses 2 and 3 represent the careful reflection of of John. John, who's writing this and who was present at the Last Supper. And John has had a, a number of years, in fact, decades, to think about all that was going on in this amazing event before he writes. Not only did Jesus display unbelievable humility in this act, he did it for one that he knew was about to betray him. As Jesus goes about washing the disciples' feet, one pair of feet belonged to none other than Judas Iscariot. That's prompted scholar D.A. Carson to say, with such power and status at his Jesus' disposal, we might have expected him to defeat the devil in an immediate and flashy confrontation and to devastate Judas with an unstoppable blast of divine wrath. Instead, he washes his disciples' feet including the feet of his betrayer. And Jesus does this unbelievable act, donning the garb of a a servant, a slave. God having come as man. He does this on the night before he dies, not only for his betrayer, but having heard the apostles arguing with each other. The other Gospels tell us that it's at this time that they're arguing about something that's very important to them. Luke 22 says, When the time came for Passover, a dispute arose among them. Now here's what it's over. Over which of them was considered to be greatest. At this time. Which of us is considered to be greatest? Mark chapter 9 tells us of this the same time, and it tells us that Jesus asked them about it. He he purposely prompted them, hey, what's that argument you guys are having? And it's in that context that Jesus does what we've read in verses 4 and 5. Commentator William Hendrickson describes the scene this way. After their walk to the upper room, their feet, protected only by sandals, had become partly exposed to sand and dust. They were dirty or at least uncomfortable. In such circumstances, the washing of the feet was customary. The host, though not himself performing this service, would generally see to it that it was performed. After all, it was a menial task, that is, a task to be discharged by a servant. 
When John the Baptist desired to give expression of his feeling of unworthiness in comparison to Christ, he could think of no better way to express this than to say that he deemed himself unworthy of kneeling in front of Jesus in order to unloose the sandal straps and remove the sandals with a view to washing the master's feet. We have an example in the Bible of this washing of the feet by an inferior to a superior. With Abigail, a woman named Abigail, washing the feet of warrior David. The Bible says she bowed down with her face to the ground and said, I am your servant and am ready to serve you and wash the feet of my Lord's servants. But here Hendrickson goes on. In the upper room, there was no servant. So one of the disciples should have performed this task. But none was willing. These men were too proud. A few moments ago, probably in connection with the order in which they would recline at the table, they'd been arguing among themselves about the question of greatness. And this was not the first time they had been squabbling about it. The question, who among us is the greatest, seems to have occupied their minds and hearts again and again. The fact that greatness is measured with the yardstick of service had not registered with them. And in the upper room, everything was ready. Here stood the pitcher and the wash basin, and there lay the long towel. There's water in the pitcher, and yet no one stirred. Each disciple was hoping someone else would make the next move. Jesus waited. The disciples had already occupied their places around the U-shaped table. The food was on the table. The meal was about to begin. Still no one offered to perform the duty of a servant. The water pitcher, the wash basin, the apron towel, placed there in plain sight of all, frowned upon them. These utensils constituted a silent accusation against these men, and still no one moved. And it was then that Jesus acted. And John, who was there, just could not believe what happened next. And so he describes in verses 4 and 5 very methodically and very solemnly every individual act that Jesus performed, he highlights. In verse 4, he says, he got up. And then he says, and he took off his outer clothing. And he tells us he wrapped a towel around his waist. And on into verse 5, poured water into a basin, began washing the disciples' feet, and dried them with the towel. I mean, each piece of this, he could have just said, Jesus washed their feet, right? But each piece of this, I was there and I see him get up. And he takes the basin. And he takes the towel. And he begins to wash our feet. The Lord of glory, bowing down to the clay feet of men to wash their feet. And as he goes from one to the other, he comes to Peter. And verse 6 says, He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not now, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, 
you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Peter's the one who speaks up. Does that surprise anyone? Peter has very famous feet, normally in his mouth. And this is yet another instance. And the way this is written in the Greek language of your New Testament, it's in, he's emphatic in verse 8. He says, you, me, never. This is a task for a servant. This is a task for a slave. And you're the master. You will not wash my feet. But when Jesus says in that verse that if I do not wash you, you have no part with me, it's a way of saying that apart from me and my act of service for you, Ultimately, on the cross the next day, you can have no relationship with God. Peter, of course, does not understand. And so he says in verse 9, Then Lord Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that is why he said not everyone was clean. And when Jesus says this, that you have a cleansing, you have, he calls it a bath, and then the only thing after the bath that's necessary is to wash the feet. He's referring to two kinds of cleansing and the spiritual application of this. There is the initial cleansing that's required for you to have part with Jesus, to have a relationship with Jesus. If I don't wash you, then you have no part with me, says Jesus to Peter. And so there is that initial cleansing that comes when we come to God through Jesus Christ. We believe in him and the washing that only he can give by his blood on the cross is applied to you personally. But then what does Jesus mean by except for his feet then? What's the ongoing cleansing then? That those who have been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb need on a daily basis because of their ongoing struggle with sin. And that's why we have in our Bible, again, 1 John, the same John, writes this letter, 1 John, toward the end of your Bible. And he says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's the initial bath, there's the initial cleansing, and then there's the ongoing cleansing. Now, Jesus does this amazing thing in front of them. John is just stupefied by it as he remembers it years later and records it for us. But Jesus does this in order to give an example to them and then to us, he tells us, for how true love is to look. And so he says in verse 12, John says, when he had finished washing their feet, he put his clothes, put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. 
Jesus is saying, the night before I go to the cross for you, I am showing you what living for one another looks like. True love is willing to not only die for someone else, but to live for someone else. And live for someone else, putting their interests above your own. You all have sat at this table and argued about who's the greatest. And yet there's no dispute among us that I, your Lord, am the greatest. And yet I've humbled myself. You, therefore, are not greater than your master. You show your love for one another by humbling yourself for their needs, living for another. So how does that look then in the rest of the New Testament? Well, it doesn't look like people going through a ceremony of washing feet. Some have made foot washing an actual third ordinance of the church. Baptism, communion, and and foot washing. You don't find that in the New Testament. You don't find that you don't find that literally being practiced in the, the rest of the New Testament. But how does it look? It looks like humbling ourselves, placing ourselves under the needs of others because we demonstrate the true love that Christ has given to us. And so we have passages like Philippians two, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather In humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. In Ephesians 4, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. And so I ask you, friends, who is it in your life that you've been unwilling, too prideful to humble yourself before, So that you can, in a Christ-like way, love them. The man whose message I read for you earlier, who says, I'm leaving your marriage, he missed that. He missed that lesson, didn't he? How many of you this morning already, certainly this week, this past month, have lived in relationships at home in which it's your way, your stubborn way, and you will not yield? This is not Christ's way. How many in your relationships with others in the church? You will not yield. Completely contrary to Christ's way. If you're going to be a follower of Christ, then the true love that he has for us needs to be expressed in our love for him first and then shown to others. That means we're willing to die, but you know how you know if you're willing to die? Because you're willing to live. You can talk. We can talk. I'd be willing to give up my life for you. That's all in the abstract. (laughs) The only way you know you're willing to die for someone is if, in fact, you're willing to live for them. True love is willing to die for another. It's willing to live for another. And thirdly, in your outline, true love is unknown by the world. True love is unknown by the world. Now, why? Because the world loves other things. The world does not love God, first and foremost, and therefore does not truly love others. And in this passage, we see a couple of things that the world loves. The first one is the world loves money. And why money? Why is money the root of all kinds of evil, does the Bible say? Because money is literally the currency that allows me to do the stuff I want. That's why. 
And so at the root of our love for money is, is our love for getting what we want. And money's the means to do that. And in this passage, we have underlying it, Judas agreed. Jesus knew who was going to betray him. The Bible tells us in the previous chapter, Judas was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Why would he betray Jesus? Because he loved money. The Bible tells us in his arrangement with the religious leaders, Judas went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? And we know the 30 pieces of silver, right? The world loves money. Secondly, the world loves power. The world loves power. Remember that argument that the apostles were having about who would be greatest. They've argued about it before. They're arguing about it again on this very night. They're arguing about position and power. And in response to that, as Jesus then convicts them with this amazing display of humility and love, He, in the chief position in the universe, is willing to bow at the feet of those he made and those who have rebelled against him. And he shows them the absolutely contradictory approach of kingdom values. And he explains to them in Luke 22, when they were arguing about this position, he says the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. They love the title of benefactors and they love to lord it over. But Jesus goes on to say, but you are not to be like that. Why? Because you're not the world. Why? Because you belong to me. Why? Because you have been transformed. Why? Because I, your Lord, have humbled myself to live and to die for you. You are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. So, friend, I ask you as I ask myself, examine your life. Am I one who is willing to do what is in the best interest of another, whatever that is? True love is willing to die for another, live for another. True love is unknown by the world. You don't get your clues about love from the world, friends. And then lastly, true love is demonstrated to the world. True love is demonstrated to the world. As the narrative in John 13 goes on, we're told about Judas going out into the night and carrying out his wicked deed of betrayal. But then we come back in verse 31, and Jesus begins to talk to them and prepare them, instructing them for the events of the next day and what would follow. And famously in verse 34, he says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, you think about that. Here Jesus is on this night, 2,000 years ago. The law, the 
first few books of your Bible have been written 1,500 years prior to that. And the law had commands about loving, didn't it? Do you remember in Deuteronomy, famously in Deuteronomy chapter 6, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength? And not only that, but then in the book of Leviticus, we're told love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus himself said, of these two laws, he he quoted these two passages when he walked the earth. And he said, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And yet here he is the night before he dies saying, I'm giving you a new commandment. Love one another. So it's clearly not new in that it's never been stated before to love. It was stated 1,500 years before. What's new are two things. The first is the standard of love. And the standard of the love that you are to show to one another is the standard that I have shown to you, says Jesus, as I have loved you. You love one another. D.A. Carson says this, Since the foot washing points to his death, these same disciples, but a few days later, would begin to appreciate a standard of love that they would explore throughout their journey. The more we recognize the depth of our sin, the more we recognize the love of the Savior. And the more we appreciate the love of the Savior, the higher His standard appears. And the higher His standard appears, the more we recognize our selfishness, our innate self-centeredness, the depth of our sin. With a standard like this, no thoughtful believer can ever say, this side of heaven, I I am perfectly keeping this basic stipulation of the new covenant that Christ inaugurated. He gave a new standard, the loftiest of standards. You love as I have loved. And then he gave, secondly, a new purpose for this love. A new purpose. And that new purpose is in in our love for one another, reflecting the relationship of love that exists between the Father and the Son. Our love for one another is designed to bring about amongst the members of the new community that would become the church in just a few days, the kind of unity that characterizes Jesus and his father. The new command is therefore not only the obligation of this new community, the church, to respond to the God who has loved them and redeemed them by the death of his son, But rather, it's a privilege which, rightly lived out, proclaims the true God and what he is like before a watching world. Here's what Jesus is saying. When you love as I have loved, your purpose now is to show the world me. This is how all men will know you're my disciples. If you love one another as I have loved you. Now, conversely, friends. Think about how high the stakes are with this. If Jesus is saying that it's in our love, this extraordinary love that the world knows nothing about, that they see God, they see what God's love is like. And therefore, you must demonstrate that. I give you this command to love as I have loved you. And the world will know you're my disciples if you do this. If that's true, of course it is. Then conversely, if we fail to love as Jesus has loved, then we're failing to show people God Almighty. 
If we're unwilling to, as it were, wash the feet, humble ourselves before our families, before our children, before our spouses, before our co-workers, before other church members, we're not showing them God. Think about who it is that Jesus loved. As I said in the prayer, it's the unlovely and the undeserving. We tend to love our own, those who are like us, and those we've chosen because they are like us. Isn't that what you do? Isn't that what we do? These are the people I hang around with because they're like me. <laughs> they got to be pretty cool because I mean, we all know I'm cool. So I choose the people that I'm going to hang around with. But in the church, hear this, you don't choose. You don't choose who comes. And thanks be to God, we're not all alike. And yet we're called to love. Now, over the next several weeks in this series, I'm going to end this series over the next few weeks by looking at what the Bible says about one another. The Bible has much to say about preferring one another, honoring one another, submitting to one another, praying for one another, forgiving one another, bearing one another's burdens. We're going to look at some of those commands as we continue to look at life in the Father's house. Your take-home truth is this. True love is doing whatever is in the best interest of another. True love is doing Whatever, living, dying, humbling, whatever it is that's in the best interest of another. Let's ask for God's help. Father, thank you for sending the Lord Jesus. We thank you profoundly for God the Son, who in his life showed us the character of God. He has, as your word says, exegeted, made known the Father by his character, his character shown in his actions and in his words. We thank you, Lord, for this act preserved these 2,000 years later for us, the night before Jesus died, humbling himself, the God of the universe, the creator of all things, washing the feet of sinful men. Oh, Lord, if I'm to be a follower of yours, then I must love as Jesus loved. And I thank you for the promise that he gave to his first followers extended to us. That those of us who love you and therefore will love others as you have loved will be blessed if we do this. We will have joy in the journey as we do this. This is not an obligation. This is not a drudgery. This is a freedom. Lord, thank you for the freedom to love as you have loved. Only Christians have the power to do this by your Holy Spirit. The world knows nothing of it. Thank you, Lord, for freeing us from the chains of money and sex and power. And Lord, help us, each person here who names the name of Christ, to know the true liberation, the true joy of loving as you have loved. And as a result, Lord, may you be glorified in our lives today this afternoon, maybe even before we leave this place, that there would be some who are getting relationships right because they're willing to humble themselves now.
This week, as they go into their homes, they're willing to seek forgiveness. And by your aid, go a new path. All of this empowered by the love that you have shown to us. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.